Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. Here we'll be at the beginning of Genesis chapter 32 as Jacob is approaching Peniel, where he will wrestle with God. This is a central aspect of Jacob's life, and here Jordan will go over the structure of the narrative, why Jacob wrestles with God, and parallels between the life of Jacob and the life of Abraham. He'll also talk about the humility of God and how worlds have to go through death and resurrection to become a better world. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the life of Jacob. If you're looking at the Fox translation, you'll notice that chapter 32 begins, Laban started early in the morning and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them, and Levon went to return to his place, which kind of obviously is really the last verse of chapter 31. And in the English Bible, and in most Bibles, you're not using the Fox translation. The first verse of chapter 32 is, Jacob went on his way, angels of God encountered him. So, this is not infrequently the case for us poor Bible students, that the Hebrew verse numbering in the Hebrew Bible is different from the verse numbering in the Bibles that we have which means when you're looking stuff up in concordances and when you're using commentaries, you're constantly getting confused in a lot of chapters. And this is one. Our verses are one verse off all the way through here. So if you're looking at the Fox translation, it says verse 2 is what in our Bibles is verse 1 and all the way through. And I'm going to use those English Bible verse numbers. But I'll be reading from the Fox translation because I like it and we're using it here. But I want to give you that notice, and I don't think it's going to be a terribly great problem, but I wanted to point that out to start with, because it's just one of them things that shows up not infrequently in the Old Testament. Sometimes the way the Hebrew Bible divides the chapters makes a whole lot more sense than the way our Bibles do. And sometimes it doesn't make as much sense. This is a case where we're right and they're wrong. So let's begin, I'll just read some of it, and then we'll kind of go into an overview today. As Yaakov went on his way, messengers of God, or angels of God, encountered him. Yaakov said when he saw them, this is a camp of God. And he called the name of that place, Double Camp, Machanayim. And Yaakov sent messengers on ahead of his face, to Esau of his brother in the land of Seir in the territory of Edom, and commanded them, saying, Thus say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Yaakov, I have sojourned with Levan and have tarried until now. Ox and donkey, sheep and servant and maid have become mine. I have sent to tell my lord to find favor in your eyes. The messengers returned to Yaakov, saying, we have come to your brother, to Asab, but he is already coming to meet you. And four hundred men are with him. And Yaakov became exceedingly afraid and was distressed. He divided the people that were with him and the sheep and the oxen and the camels into two camps, saying to himself, Should Asab come against the one camp and strike it, the camp that is left will escape. Then Yaakov said, God of my father Abraham, 
God of my father Yitzchak, O Yahweh, who said to me, Return to your land, to your kindred, and I will deal well with you. Too small am I for all the faithfulness and trust that you have shown your servant. For with only my rod did I cross this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Save me, I prithee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am in fear of him, lest he come and strike me down, mothers and children alike. But as for you, you have said, I will deal well, well with you. I will make your seed like the sand of the sea, which is too much to count. And he spent the night there that night. I'm going to stop reading there. If you look at your notes, let's just remind ourselves where we are. We found that there is a large structure to the entire Jacob narrative that moves to the center where sons are born and then moves back out. And we are at the L section, as you can see here, of Peniel Theophany of God with Angels in chapter 32, which matches the Bethel Theophany. So just as Jacob leaves the land and he encounters God and he encounters angels and he names the place House of God, so as he comes back into the land, he's encountering angels, he's about to encounter God, he names the place Camp of God, and there are all these parallels. And so that's the major outline of the entire passage. And then there's another way to take the Jacob narrative, which is also present. It doesn't take into account all the factors, but you can see it in that he starts at Bethel, he's told to come back to Bethel, and eventually he does come back to Bethel. And if you outline the Jacob story that way, we're really at the center of the story. The Peniel Theophany is at the center. He has Bethel, we go to the Gentiles, we have a revelation from God telling him to leave, we have Jacob and Laban, and then we come to Peniel, the wrestling with God. Then we have Jacob and Esau, we build an altar, we have a relationship with the Gentiles again, which results in a curse, Simeon and Levi, and then we come finally back to Bethel where God speaks to them again. So, either way, we're at a focal point here, and either outline works. So I wanted to remind us that that's where we are in the overall story. And of course, obviously, we're familiar enough with these stories to know that when Jacob wrestled with God and his name has changed, that's a big event. But what's the structure here in this chapter? Well, basically, it's a very broad, chiastic structure with a prayer in the middle. Jacob encounters angels, just as he did at Bethel in verses 1 and 2. He sends messages back and forth to Esau and prepares to meet Esau in verses 3 to 8, which we just saw, and at that point Jacob divides his camp. And then we have a prayer in which he wrestles with God, which we just read at the center of this chapter. What we didn't read and we would come to if we had continued is he sends gifts to Esau, and he divides gifts for Esau and takes his camp across the river, so that theme is there. And then finally Jacob encounters Yahweh as at Bethel. So the prayer is really the center here. Another way we can do this, and probably do it eventually, is if you take chapter 32 and 33 together, then we have Esau is on his way, we wrestle with God at Peniel, and then we deal with Esau. But here within this section, which is a unified section, that's how it's set up. And I think that it's important for us to see that Jacob's wrestling prayer with God that we just read where he prays God to save his family reveals the content of his wrestling with the man at Peniel. We think, you know, what sense does it make for God to come and get into a fist fight with Jacob all night long? Well, that's a symbol of wrestling with God 
in prayer, and this prayer here shows us what that wrestling was about. Jacob is not wrestling so that he can keep his sheep. He's wrestling so that he can preserve his wives and children, even if he has to give all of his sheep and goats to Esau. We'll mark that for one point, which we will come back to, of course. I want to point out a couple of things as we move into this. It's a good place to do it. There are important parallels between Jacob and Abraham. We've mentioned some of these before, but it's just kind of worth bringing them up again because Abraham goes through some of these same events but with a different theme. And that helps us to focus in on what the Jacob story is about when we see the contrast. In Genesis 13, we find that after Abram comes into the land and he gets back from Egypt, he has strife with Lot. And the strife concerns their herd. It says it didn't seem to be enough in the land for both Lot and Abram, and their herdsmen fought, and Lot separates from him. Well, Lot is Abraham's nephew. Laban is Jacob's uncle. We have the same kind of thing happening. They're both cousins. They're both striving over flocks and wrestling over that. And an important parallel, Lot is later deceived by his two daughters, just as Laban is deceived by his two daughters, although in Lot's case the deception's a lot worse. But these parallels show us something. They were supposed to compare these stories. Then in Genesis 15 and 17, God makes a covenant with Abram. In Genesis 15, he promises him the land and seals him back to the land up until that point. The land keeps throwing Abraham out. It keeps being a famine. He has to go down to Egypt. Then he comes back with Lot and the land isn't good enough for both of them. They have to separate. And God says, I'm going to give you this land. And Abram says, what good is this land to me? He won't cooperate. And so they divide the animals and God seals Abraham to the land by moving between these animal parts, which represent the land and Abraham, which are now joined together. And even more importantly, in chapter 17, God comes and makes a covenant again with him, focusing in on the son and tells Abraham he has to cut himself in half through circumcision. And circumcision is a wound in the thigh. Well, Peniel corresponds to that because Jacob receives a wound in the thigh, in his leg. This is all the same zone of the body. And when we get there, we find the children of Israel don't even eat that part of the animal. It's set aside, it's cut off. So the, the parallels between these two things are important. And it's like Jacob receives a more intense form of circumcision in the wound that he's going to get at Peniel. Which helps us to understand, I mean, this wound is, as the text will tell us, not a symbol of God's judgment, but a symbol of covenant blessing to him. It will mean, however, that Jacob can no longer act on his own. You can't walk. You can't fight. Your sons will have to do everything for you. And that's not going to be a very happy circumstance for him. At any rate, that's at the center. And then we have, again, a separation between two people, only Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is said to leave. And Jacob and Esau meet, and then they separate and go their own ways. So... These parallels uh, between Abraham and Jacob help us to see something about circumcision and the leg wound. They also help us to see something about the wrestling with Peniel and giving a new name. Just as in Genesis 17, that's where Abraham gets a new name, right? Yes. In Genesis 17, in connection with circumcision, Abram's name is changed to Abraham. At Peniel, where the leg wound takes place, Jacob's name is changed to 
Israel. Well, these are important parallels. There are further parallels and contrasts that are good to think about, and that helps, again, to show us what's going on in this chapter where God wrestles with Jacob. First of all, God focuses Abraham's life and his attention on having a son. And Jacob, Jacob's mind and life are focused on acquiring an estate. And as you read the stories, God tells Abraham, your child is, your wife can't have children, but you're going to have a son. Everything's going to come through your son. Year after year, Abram's thinking about a son. Son, son, son. It becomes more and more and more important to us, as if it weren't already very important to someone in the ancient world. Similarly with Jacob. Jacob is told right off the bat, at the beginning of his life, you're going to inherit everything. The elder will serve the younger. But year after year after year, he maintains the estate, but it's obvious it's going to go to Esau. Well, this kind of thing makes you think about stuff. That's what you wind up thinking about all the time, this estate. It's important to have it. If you're going to amount to anything, you got to have some sheep and goats back in them days. They didn't have computers. You couldn't be a rocket scientist. If you are going to have anything, it was going to be animal. And Jacob's life and his mind becomes focused on that and the fact that God says he's going to give it. Well, in both stories, we have trickery. Abraham deceives Pharaoh and he deceives Abimelech in order to preserve his wife, and in order to get the son through her. We don't want Pharaoh to be messing with Sarah, so we claim that she's the sister, so that he'll leave her alone. Doesn't work, but that was the intention. Same with Abimelech. Similarly, Jacob winds up employing trickery or deals to get the estates that are promised by God. He doesn't trick Esau when he has the deal with him over the lentil stew, there's no trickery there, but there is definitely trickery with Isaac. And again, there's certain things that God has said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you sons, I'm going to give you the inheritance and the estate, and it seems like the right way to get it, or you've got tyrants who are trying to take it away from you, and you have to deal with that. And both stories show that. And that's whether you think it was right or wrong, both stories show it. Then in both stories, we have kind of a false start. Abraham gets a son that God does not intend for him to have as a result of a plan by his wife. And Jacob gets an estate that God does not intend for him to have as a result of a plan by his mother. You think about these things. They are parallel, even though, as always, there's some contrast. Both Sarai and Rebekah have good intentions. And are seeking to do God's will. Sarai says, well, if I can't give birth to a baby out of my body, then... My servant girl will, and the baby will be born on my knees and be adopted by me. But it doesn't work out that way. Similarly, Rebecca says, well, if Isaac isn't going to give the inheritance to Jacob, then we'll just arrange it so that he does. But it doesn't quite work out that way. I've argued that in itself, Rebecca's actions are not wrong, but they don't have the consequence that she expects, at least not entirely, because Jacob is sent away. He doesn't inherit it. At least not right off the bat. We don't know for sure if Jacob actually received the inheritance. If you think about it, Jacob leaves. He says here, nothing but my staff. He's gone for 20 years. But what about all this estate here? Who gets it? Does Esau get it? Or does Jacob get it when he finally returns to Isaac at the end of his life? We're not really told. 
nothing specific said. It may be that he just kind of wound up falling to Esau, although I think probably not. I think Esau, he has these marriages. Chapter 36 tells us that he becomes a duke in Seir, and eventually they have kings there, and we're going to see that this has already started to happen. In fact, we just read it. It said, Jacob sent messengers to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, in the territory of Edom. Well, Edom means Esau, so in a sense already he's linked in with this group of Canaanites in Seir, and he's already got some type of a culture going there. But for certain, Jacob doesn't receive that inheritance right off the bat. And for certain, Ishmael is not the one that God intended for Abraham to have. And yet in both cases, we have women. Naturally, it's women who mess things up. But in both cases, we have women with good intentions trying to bring these things to pass, and they don't quite work out as intended. So that's a parallel. And again, Abraham is the son. With Jacob, it's an estate. Abraham gets a new son, Isaac. He gets a new son, and then he has to give him up. Jacob gets a new estate from Laban. That was not the estate that Isaac was going to give him. He gets a new one. Then he has to give it up to Esau, or most of it. He doesn't give it all up, but he gives a huge amount of it up. I have to ask, when it says here that he gave 200 she-goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams and 30 camels and their young and 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 she-donkeys and 10 male donkeys. When he gives that much to Esau, how much is left? I mean, we had six years to build this stuff up. Six years is not a real long time. How many striped and speckled sheep can you get and goats and dark sheep can you get in six years and then sell a bunch of them and buy camels and cows and donkeys? and servants. I think he's given a huge amount of his estate to Esau, and God more or less forces him to. God says, hey, you have to give it up. This is God says to Abraham, you have to give it up. So what happens in both of these stories, and it happens again in others, is that God comes to each man first his life, and then his death. He comes to the tree of life, and he gives all these gifts, and he gives all these promises, and he builds them up, and then he says, in the middle of life, you have to give it all away. And I call that the midlife crisis because it happens over and over again in the Bible. Then there's reasons for it. The first world that you're in has to undergo a death and resurrection to become a better world. And apparently there's no way for that to happen without learning to give things up. Practically speaking, we can see that as God comes and gives men a gift or promises them, the man is put in a position of focusing on this gift. I mean, Abraham can become an idolater with his son. Think too much of it. Think about it all the time and have all of his hope pinned on a son instead of his hope pinned on God. And Jacob the same way. You have to wrestle with Laban for all these years to try to get your sheep and your wages are changed. Pretty much after a while, that's all you think about. <laughs> all you're thinking about is getting more sheep and trying to preserve what you have. Your whole mind becomes focused on these possessions, which are good, and God has given you, but there's a danger that you'll become so focused on them that they become an idol, and so then God says, well, you have to give it up. There's a danger it'll become too important. And so I think that's part of it. But there's also the part that in order to get the better things that God has in mind, 
there has to be some type of a giving up. And I think the reason for that is that that's what God does. That's how God lives. You never find in the Bible that any person of the Trinity seeks glory for himself. He always seeks it for the other two. The Father gives up his right and his glory so that the Son and the Spirit can be glorified. And then they give back to him their glory and he receives double back. I think we've done this before, but this is where it comes up. We have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father gives his glory to the Son and the Spirit and receives back from the Son and the Spirit their glory. What does he receive back? Double. Well, what does he do? He gives up his possession, his glory, what he is, to the Son and the Spirit, and then receives double back. And the Son does the same thing. The Son gives all of his glory to the Father and the Spirit, but he receives double back. So, when the Father shows up, he says, hey, when everybody's interested in learning about the Father, what does he say? He says, this is my Son, listen to him. And when the Son comes, he says, hey, I'm only doing what my Father told me, and I'm about to leave, and the Spirit's coming, the Spirit is what you really ought to be excited about. When the Spirit comes, what does he do? He calls attention to the Father and the Son. Each member of the Trinity delights to humble himself to glorify the other two, and that's why we're supposed to live in humility with one another. Humility is an attribute of each person of God, as each one delights to humble himself to glorify the other two, and that's why we're supposed to let each esteem the other better than himself, because that's the way God lives. Well, if that's the way God lives, then that's the way God organizes our lives so that we're given things and then we have an opportunity to give them up so that we receive double back. Now who in the Bible is forced to give everything up and receive double back? There's a whole book about this. Job, that's right. Job loses it all and he gets double back. And in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, you have the same thing. One man is given five talents, one man is given two, and one man is given one talent. At the end, the man with five talents gets double back. The man with two talents gets double back. And the man with one talent says, he comes to the master and he says, here is the talent you gave me, I still have it. That's a contrast. The guy with five talents has given his up. He's used his for the kingdom. He doesn't have his original talents anymore. He gave them up, but he got double back. The man with two talents gave his up but got double back. The man with one talent held on to it and lost it. It's the same principle you have with Job. Well, in different ways this happens in our lives, and part of what the Bible does with all the different stories is to show us different ways in which you receive stuff back. Sometimes what you receive back is the opportunity to suffer more, <laughs> which in itself is a privilege of living like Jesus did. There are varieties of ways in which God gives you double back in this life and in the world to come. Of course, there's no suffering. It's hundredfold in the world to come. But there are varieties of ways. And so with Jeremiah, Jeremiah has to give everything up and be lowered into the pit. And then his reward is he gets dragged off to Egypt. So that's not exactly a positive version of this story at least the way we think of it. But, of course, Jeremiah has wonders in heaven as a result of going through that. 
Well, these early stories show this, and every one of them does. Abram has to give up Isaac, but he receives him back with more blessings. Eventually, Abram winds up married to someone else with six more sons. That's on the other side of this. If you want sons, you get lots of sons, but only if you give up a son. Jacob must give up a huge part of his estate. He doesn't receive it back. He doesn't receive that back. Jacob receives the blessing of reconciliation with Esau, and that lasts for a number of years until Simeon and Levi make it impossible for him to live there. But he does wind up with a much vaster estate. And the proof of that is that when they go to Egypt, they have to be given this land of Goshen to dwell in. You don't just put 70 people in a whole land. The Bible will tell us about all of his servants and all of his cattle and everything else, and all of these go down into the land of Goshen. So he gets a whole lot more back, but only after giving up. Well, that applies to Joseph and Moses as well. Joseph is Potiphar's right-hand man at court. Potiphar is the captain of the Praetorian Guard. And Joseph has to give it all up rather than commit adultery. Moses is the son of Pharaoh. He has to give it all up. What does Moses get back? Well, the opportunity to be the leader of a nation that persecutes him for 40 years. <laughs> and finally, he doesn't even get to go into the promised land. But of course, we all know who Moses is. So you receive back what you give up, double, but there's various ways in which that happens. That's an important theme, and that's what's happening here. This is really the middle of Jacob's life, although at 97 years old, that would be pretty old for us in terms of his lifespan. This is the middle, and he's got to give it up and get more back. Another comparison between the two men is to notice that in Abraham's case, Abraham's faith is sheer patience and waiting. Abraham doesn't wrestle with God. Every time a movie is made of Abraham offering Isaac or a story is written about it, they always show him pleading with God and wrestling with God and in agony and all this before he takes Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him. But the Bible doesn't say anything about that. The Bible does not present Abraham as wrestling or fighting with God, just waiting. It's just sheer waiting faith, which is hard to do. And he jumped the gun on one occasion. Jacob also has to wait for a very long period of time, but he also wrestles. He wrestles with Esau to get the birthright, he wrestles with Isaac, he wrestles with Laban, and finally he's going to wrestle with God. So there's another picture of faith there. If you were to say, well, faith is just sitting back and waiting. No, you've got the story of Jacob to say, no, sometimes it involves wrestling. But wrestling in a context of patience and waiting. Okay, that's introductory stuff. I do want to very quickly point to some of the themes in the chapter here. There are some themes that show up in Hebrew that you wouldn't pick up. And I just want to point these out here on page 97. Because of our translation, we don't see these things, but you would hear them if you heard it in Hebrew. The word Jacob, Yaakov, is very similar to the word for struggles or wrestles with God. Later on, when we come to it, it says, A man wrestled with him until coming of dawn. The socket of Jacob's thigh had been dislocated as he wrestled with him. That word is abak. It's got this very similar sound. The letters are reversed, consonants are reversed, but that doesn't matter. And the place where this happens is jabak or yabak, which again has the same consonants. 
And Yaakov and Yabak are very similar in Hebrew. Not only do they have the same consonants, but that transposition of letters isn't going to matter to the sound of the word. Remember, we saw that Rebecca is a variation of the term Baraka, which means blessing. The same Yaakov and Yabok are just variations of the same sound, and in Hebrew you would hear that. And so Jacob, as one who struggles at a place called Yabok, is a sound, a similar sound. I wanted to point that out. Similarly, we will see this. The other word for wrestle in this chapter is Sarah, which is in the sound of Yisrael. Yisrael has that other word for fight or wrestle, so that Yisrael means wrestler with God. Peniel and Penuel means face of El. And in chapter 33, there's going to be a big emphasis on the face of Esau, but there is in this chapter an emphasis on face as well. Down in F, I point out the word face occurs ten times here. And if you include Peniel and Penuel, it occurs twelve times. We'll be coming to those words. They're both here, Peniel and Penuel, and variations of the same word. Face of God. D, there's a sound that you wouldn't catch. And Jacob sends to Esau and says, I hope for your favor in your eyes. Later on when he says, I hope that he'll be gracious unto me. He sends a present to him. These all have the same sound. The same particle is in all. Chain. Chain is favor. Chenain. Chanan is be gracious. A present is mincha. Same sounds. And the word camp is machana. It's a different word, but it's got the same sounds. And the word camp occurs seven times in this passage. So just in terms of sound, you've got the idea of needing grace, needing favor, being in a camp creates a lot of similar sounds that we don't catch because we're reading it in English, but would be there. And I just wanted to point that out. I think it's useful to see that God has established some of these themes with these sounds, and it's going to be important. How is Jacob going to find favor in the eyes of Esau after everything that's happened? Well, it's because God will bring it to pass. So much for intro. Let's read a little bit, and then we'll be done for today. Verses 1 and 2. Jacob went on his way. Angels of God encountered him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is a camp of God, and he called the name of that place Double Camp or Machaniah. The two camps here would be God's camp and Jacob's camp. Jacob is aware that the angels are camped with him. So there's a camp of God over here, and there's Jacob's camp. And so the place is a double camp, a place where God camps with man. And when does God camp with man later on? Well, in the wilderness at Sinai. God's camp is there, the Israelite camp is there. So these are two camps. Now all of the language here is straight out of Genesis 28.11. In 28.11, Jacob encountered a place to sleep. Here angels encounter him. That language is very unusual. It could say meet or met up with. The unusual word is used here. It's not used very often, creating a link between the two. This is the only place where angels of God show up in this text. Here and the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder to heaven. And the statement, this is a camp of God, is directly parallel to this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So we're being told that these are parallel events. 
And so when we get down to the end of this chapter and we're wrestling with God and all of this happens at night, Jacob prays during the night and he wrestles during the next night. And before, it was when he was asleep at night that he saw the ladder to heaven. So all of these things create the important parallels between the two. We're really coming back to Bethel in a sense at this point. I think it's useful to notice in verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of his face. It says literally, one of the uses of the word face here, Jacob sent messengers ahead of his face to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir and the territory of Edom. Esau has already become linked in with this culture. He married several Canaanite women. He already had sons and probably grandchildren by the time Jacob left. So he's really moved way ahead of Jacob in terms of having wives, children, beginning of a nation, and we'll come to that when we come to chapter 36. But in chapter 36, we're given a list of all these sons of Esau, and then the Seir in verse 20, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite, and the reason they're mentioned here is that that's the Canaanite group that Esau joined. So Esau joins himself with the Canaanites, he marries into them, he becomes part of this culture, and geographically, this place is where Jacob has to pass through in order to get into the Promised Land. And essentially, we're here, and here are the two rivers, and we're coming back more or less like this, and Esau is kind of in this area here. And it's not directly on the path, but if we're going to come in, we're going to have to meet with Esau. That's where he's living now. This is where, essentially, uh, there's no way to avoid him. And we need safe conduct. And we don't need him coming out with 400 men. <laughs> Unless they're coming out to give us safe conduct and to escort us. But we're not sure about that. So I think we want to notice that Esau is already in this culture. And he's already a lord within the culture of the Seirites, the Horites there. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good question. How did Esau know that this was happening? Don't know. I think that you could establish a parallel when Rahab says when the Jews came out of Egypt, everybody in Canaan heard about it and was afraid. Maybe Jacob's leaving with so many men was an event that made news. But how did news travel and... Yeah, except that a caravan wouldn't necessarily go any faster than Jacob is traveling. So, who do you think might have sent word to Esau in order to get Jacob in trouble? Yeah, that would be my guess. If I was making a movie out of this, I'd have Laban say, Oh, I know how to stick it to him. I'll send word to Esau. <laughs> that would be my guess, but we, we don't know. Yeah. But like you say, we're not told and... Somehow or other, Esau already knows. <laughs> That's a good question. Let's just finish this little section up and we'll be done. Jacob, in verses 4 and 5, he tells the men, the messengers, see, Jacob now sends messengers. He meets messengers from God, angels. Now he sends messengers. The messengers are important here. Just an important theme. God's camp has messengers, and Jacob's camp has messengers. He sends messengers to Esau, and he says, I've lived with Laban until now, and he lists five things, ox, donkey, sheep, servant, and maid, maid servant, 
A list of five indicates power in the Bible. It's the number of the hand, and you'll find lists of five had to do with power. The term battle array, as you find it in the English Bible, literally says in Hebrew, five in a rank. So he's saying, look, I've got a lot of stuff here. I've acquired power. And I think Jacob is implying, I don't need the inheritance anymore. I'm not coming back to claim anything. I've already got a lot of stuff. He wants to let Esau know that. And Jacob is essentially seeking safe passage through Esau's land. Well, then he's told that Esau is already coming out with 400 men. Now, it's possible that Esau is coming out with 400 men to escort him through the land so that he's not attacked on the way. And as a matter of fact, that's what's going to happen. His 400 men are there to give safe passage to Jacob. But it's also possible that 400 men are coming out for a much direer reason. And from everything we know about Esau in the past, that's what we assume. We assume he's bringing out 400 men, which is a lot of men. Abraham took 318 men to go rescue Lot. This is even more. 400 men is quite a threat. And I think we have to see it as a threat. And Jacob's response is perfectly understandable. In verses 7 and 8, Jacob becomes exceedingly afraid and is distressed. He divides the people with him and the sheep and the oxen and the camels into two camps, saying to himself, should Esau come against one camp and strike at the camp that is left, will escape. We have another double camp here. In fact, we have three instances of a double camp or two camps. We have God's camp and Jacob's. Jacob divides his into two camps. And we have Jacob's camp and Esau's camp. That's kind of a theme here that you got two groups. And this dividing into two camps, which is explained a little bit, I think, in the next chapter where, as he goes to meet Esau, he divides the children among Leah, Rachel, and two maids. He put the maids and their children first, Leah and her children behind them, Rachel and Joseph behind them, while he himself advanced ahead. We don't know exactly who was in which of these two camps, but we know that later on in Israelite history, there are continual problems between Ephraim and Judah as to who is going to be in charge of the land and the kingdom eventually divides into north and south. And that whole problem has already started up with having two mothers and favored sons and unfavored sons and here we have two camps. We seem to be told this and I think it fits in with that theme. So, That's where we are, and next week we'll take up with Jacob's prayer, which is the heart of this passage, and we'll find that Jacob says he asked for his wives and children. He doesn't ask that he be allowed to keep a bunch of sheep and oxen. He's forced to come to grips with what's most important, which is good. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.